This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. My guest for this episode is Joanne Lembo, who is the Director of Student Activities at Phillips Exeter Academy and LGBTQ plus coordinator. In this episode, we'll discuss her personal journey as a lesbian and a matter of covering and passing. We'll also talk a little bit about the importance of affinity spaces, allyship symbols, and more. Hey, I'm here with my colleague, Joanne Lembo. Thank you for joining me. Uh, And uh, this is your first podcast, and I suspect there will be many other opportunities (laughs) for you to be on shows, maybe even this one. We'll see. (laughs) She's like, chill out, chill out, like one at a time. Um, But I'm pleased to have you on the podcast. Uh, We work together in many spaces on campus. I've worked with many people in my career, but there aren't many, I could say, who are willing to be as vulnerable and pointed as Joanne. In terms of vulnerability, she's willing to ask questions or raise points as a white woman that others may fear asking. And with regards to being pointed, Joanne just tells it like it is. She doesn't pull punches, and I appreciate the honesty. I'll get into the matter of Joanne being uh, pointed later in this episode. So before we go any further, Joanne, how do you identify? I identify as a lesbian woman. When I was kind of coming out and into my own, um, the term queer was still a word that was very much used against our community. So I didn't adopt that then. Um, and I, you know, I, I identify as a lesbian, but many of my colleagues who are out and queer, who are younger than I, use the term queer. For how much of your life have you identified as a lesbian? I was starting to figure stuff out in high school, but not really. And then definitely in college, I was figuring out my own identity. Um, but it wasn't until I graduated from college and started working for, at uh, for the University of New Hampshire uh, that I realized that, yes, indeed, that I, you know, I'm definitely more attracted to women and that I identify as a lesbian. So that was, you know, almost um, 27 years ago now. So more than half my life. Was this a matter of not knowing? Was it um, fear of stigma? I went to a boarding school myself and in high school, I was the one people came out to. And at that point, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Okay, they must think of me as a, you know, accepting person. And that's cool. You know, that's cool. Um, but it really hadn't clicked for myself. And, and I sort of started thinking about it a little bit, but really, it, you know, it wasn't until I got to college, I'm like, yeah, I definitely attracted to women. And I also, I I went to Bennington College, which was an amazing place for self-discovery, an amazingly open and accepting and warm community. So I definitely did not feel, you know, any um, stigma there. Definitely, I would say there was more stigma, you know, with family and um, home. My, my, uh, My background is both my parents were Roman Catholic, and I was raised in the Roman Catholic faith. And, um, it, you know, definitely homosexuality in the Roman Catholic, in the view of the Roman Catholic faith, you can, you can be quote unquote a homosexual, but you can't act on it. So there's that kind of that tension there. So there was definitely, um, tension at home. 
I never worried ever about my parents not loving me. So I was never worried about that. And um, so when I finally did come out to my parents, I don't think they understood it very much at first. And um, my mom did try to, uh, she wanted to send me to one of those conversion camps. Um, And when I'm like, I watched the video, the VCR tape. The VCR yeah, tape and yeah, yeah. put it in and watched it. And the next morning, I went down to her and said, "Are you trying to kill your oldest child? Because mm. that's what this will do. Because mm. these conversion camps are dangerous. Yeah. They're not real therapy, and you know I want no part of it." And interestingly enough, that was that was that was it. Okay, and so I, I have to ask, just um, to be straightforward. Is it hard for you to talk about that period in your life? Not now. Um, it really isn't hard to talk about it now. If I look back on it, I think my mom knew before I did. And, you know, because I, when I worked at University of New Hampshire, I advised their, um, their gender and sexuality alliance, you know, as, you know, the staff member. So I did all those things. And my mom kept asking me, you know, if, if I was a lesbian, I kept denying it in the beginning. So there was a point in your life, then you would say that um, you were passing and covering, right? Because from what I know of you uh, now uh, as a colleague, and when I said earlier in my introduction that you're very pointed, um, the first day when families move their children here, um, Joanne will tell them straight up, I am married, my wife lives across the street, very straight up, like this is who I am. Um, and she's pointed in other ways, but regarding her sexuality, it is just very like, you don't have to guess or wait for somebody else to tell you. And with regard to waiting for somebody else to tell you, I discussed this with a guest in a prior um, episode where I, I worked somewhere and my colleagues didn't have to come out to me because people were informing me about their sexuality, people who never talked about that. But, you know, it's not like somebody was coming up to me like, hey, Michelle, she's a heterosexual. And you, and, and I found in that experience that like my colleagues who were queer were not open about that initially. They waited a while. Um, whereas, again, you are very straight up. It doesn't matter if, if it's a colleague, a parent, a student. Can you take me on that journey of yeah. how and when you decided, you know what, you got the problem, not me. Well, you know, as I've joked, you know, I've been here, it's been my 25th year at the Academy and they haven't fired me yet. So I figure I'm in in fairly good steed and, and I am known for pushing the envelope. Um, I am also known for kind of running to the burning building and, you know, without my life, you know, my, my mask on too. And, you know, and that's a blessing and a curse. Um, there are times when that served me very well in my life, other times when it's not served me as well. I would say well, for the first probably eight years I was at the academy, I was not involved in the GSA. Oh. I was, you know, I was you know, obviously supportive, but I wasn't involved in it. And then once I became involved, I realized that I have the privilege of working in a school working at a school um, that supports all of who I am. And I have a choice with that privilege. 
I can use that to help and be there for students or not. And as you know, um, our students who are at the highest risk of um, suicidality are students who identify as queer, especially our students who are um, queer POC, you know, and I wanted to show them that, you know, being queer is not a bad thing. You know, it is, it's who you are. And you had asked me before why, why I feel like that Exeter is a good place for me to be, or I could be my whole self is that when I, when I applied to the Academy, I made sure they had domestic partner benefits back then. Um, I, I had done my research and, you know, knew that they were, they were already out faculty member here. You know, it was a school that had one of the oldest GSAs in the country. So I knew there was support there too. So that's what, and also I think the fact that, um, you know, in the way I've been treated, you know, over the years, it, you know, the fact that I have a wife, it, it didn't matter to people. Okay, so that was your social cue here that yeah. you were accepted. Um, yes. The fact that um, your wife was accepted, your your marriage was accepted. Yes. Okay, absolutely. because I, yeah, I um, I had a conversation in my first year here with a colleague. This colleague identifies as queer. Um, she's a woman, and she said, you know, just walking around here, I just don't feel a sense of affirmation. And I'm looking at her and it tripped me up because as a black man, I'm like, yo, I walk around here and I don't feel affirmed. And you're a white woman in this very white institution, in a very white state, in a very white town. Like, I I just kind of wondered, you know, what are the cues for people that may lead them to feel a certain way? No, and that's a really good question. I also, um, when I was pregnant with my child... Um, I was on bed rest for almost three months. This community came in and made me food. They sat with me, you know, they did all those things, you know, um, it was amazing. Also, when you're raising a small child in community, there were so many other um, children around the same age as my child at the Harris Center. So, you know, if one parent couldn't make it to pick up, someone else could pick up, there was, or, you know, the dining hall, there was all, there was good support. So that really helped make it for me. And I also think the fact that it's a different journey for everybody, sure. but I also, and um, I made a very deliberate effort to um, not only make this place my workplace, but also this is where I live and I'm raising a family and community. So we very much you know, reached out and did the social things that granted, because I'm white, maybe that's also, I was a lot of more privilege there. And I, and I recognize that too. I want to be, I want to put that out there right now, yeah, yeah. but you know, as a young family, when I first actually I was single, when I first got here, then married, then as a young family, when I lived on campus, moved on campus, I really found a huge support system here. At the time when you got here, um, were there any affinity groups for queer families, for queer students. Um, You said there was a GSA. Was that an open um, club or was that an affinity space? There was a GSA that was an open space. There were no kind of groups for adults at that point. I mean, there there were social, you know, people just think socially because they're a friend, but there wasn't, you know, any specific groups. 
about eight or nine years ago, um, I realized that there was a need for an affinity space for our queer students. I realized this because I had kids coming to me who were, um, you know, varsity captains, who were uh, dorm proctors, who were um, club leaders, who said, I, I will not, I can't be seen in the GSA space. So that's when we started the um, kind of the queer affinity space. And at first it was, you know, four or five kids who met every Sunday night at my house. And then that list grew over the years to, you know, they're now 50 kids on the list, yeah. you know, and these kids, but interestingly enough that over the, you know, this court, this eight or nine years, the GSA has also changed so that um, more of our students feel comfortable going to the GSA also. Yeah. Um, but there are still students who only, who will not step up the GSA, who only come to queer affinity spaces. And we've been fortunate uh, because when it was, it was in the beginning, it was just a queer affinity space. Now there is a, um, you know, a, a queer kids of color affinity yeah. space. There's a gender group. Yeah. There is um, a group for que younger queer students, group for older queer students. Um, there is a space for bi students. It, it, there's all these different spaces, yep. uh, gay, male, lesbian, you know, we, we have the numbers to support that. And for my audience, my listeners who are unfamiliar with the idea of affinity spaces and with clubs or cultural yep. clubs, um, can you define those terms, please? Absolutely. Uh, a cultural club is a space that is open to anyone, uh, regardless of their identity. Whereas an affinity space, you have to um, be part of that affinity to be in that space. Now, granted, we're, we're not saying that, you know, people who come into these affinity spaces, how do you identify? You know, they may be trying to figure it out themselves. But there, it's, it's a space for folks who are, um, either know that they identify this way or think that they identify this way. Okay, and so there isn't a membership form that people have to <laughs> use to come in there and people aren't no. checking their cards at the door like, hey, are you supposed to be here? Yeah, no. You know, a friend will bring someone along because that friend may have a better idea than the actual individual. And a couple of weeks later, the individual's like, oh, this is why you brought me here. Now I understand, you know. Yeah. Sometimes... Um, you know, friends can see things before individuals can see it. And what would you say to the person who says, and I'm talking about the the cynic who says, well, what are we doing just separating people and not allowing them to be together? Why would you have a cultural group versus an affinity group? Why not bring everybody together? So what is the value in your estimation of affinity groups? That's a great question. I absolutely think that I am so glad that we have our GSA that's open to anyone because um, it's really important for people to have that safe space to, to be there and um, and ask questions and learn and this. But I think in the affinity spaces, it's what it becomes is it's a safe and confidential. I didn't confidential before. It's a safe and confidential space for our students to just be with other people who share that same identity. Yeah. 
you know, how I, it's, 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 oh, I need to go home for the holidays. How do I come out to my parents and have that conversation with other supportive people? And just, you know, knowing that there are other people who are going through similar situations is why the affinity space is so important. And it's not as a way to alienate or separate, but really as a way to give support. Yeah, it's support. It's affirmation. I mean, exactly. um, to be in a community where you aren't in the majority um, and, you know, we don't have numbers specifically for how many students um, or even adults identify as queer. And so the affinity spaces offer an opportunity to connect with people and feel like they understand. You don't have to say more. And there's a, a weight that's lifted off of you to be in that setting where you don't have to, like, answer the sort of questions I'm asking in this podcast, <laughs> people just know. And and so my audience knows I'm asking these questions because it's a show. You yeah. know, it's not like Joanne comes to work and I'm like, so tell me about your journey. But I, I want to actually circle back on what you said before. You know, you had asked me, you talked about, about how I'm very kind of open with my sexuality and especially in the beginning of the year with students and their families. I, when I first became a dorm head, that's when I knew that I had to be right out there Yeah. because last thing I wanted, you know, was for a parent or a student to find out midway and feel someone they've been tricked or deceived by me, which is weird because why, why should I have to come out? Yeah. 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 But I realized professionally it was easier if I did come out in the beginning. So this is who I am. This is what you're getting. If you're, if you have any issue with this problem with this, speak up now. And then otherwise we move on. And I have to say, I have not in my entirety as a dorm head, you know, in my entirety as advising students, I've only had one or two instances where the parents did not want me to advise their children. You had talked about passing and, um, or covering before. I was going to go back to that. Um, so I'm glad you pivoted there. That's what years of working together does. It creates this <laughs> synergy. So yeah. I'm like, okay, I got to find a way to go back to that. So in talking about passing and covering, can you define those terms, please? Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, while I'm on campus, I am very out, very, you know, people know me, people know my wife, people know my child, you know, what about the grocery store? You know, when I'm, um, you know, off campus, other places, every single day, there's a series of times when I I question, do I come out? Do I not come out? Do I pass? Do I cover? And I would say, um, and for me, passing is just, okay, it's, you know, here's this middle-aged, I hate the term, but here's this middle-aged woman, you know, in the grocery store, you know, picking up avocados, you know, um, let's blending in. And for me, a covering is when I refer to Lee as my spouse, as opposed to my wife. Mm. And, you know, even um, as you you know, we were bought bought some furniture off of Craigslist the other day and uh, the gentleman we bought it from, um, we were communicating via text and he was going to drop it off. Instead of saying my wife, Lee, because yeah. Lee spelled L-E-E, which is technically yeah. a more masculine spelling, yeah. I put my spouse, Lee, will be there to meet you at the house. Yeah. And did this man cause any threat? Probably not. Yeah. 
But was I concerned a little bit? Oftentimes, um, you know, restaurants, hotels, it's do it come out, do it not come out. And what dictates if you will or not? Um, and before you answer that question, I want to make sure my audience caught this. So covering is essentially hiding something intentionally and passing is blending in. So yeah. not um, being explicit about an aspect of your identity. And I learned about these terms reading Kenji Yoshino's mm -hmm. covering. So if folks out there want to educate themselves, don't find the acquaintance or colleague to then badger with questions. You have an opportunity to read a book as well. Um, yes. Some people are open to having these conversations, others aren't. So just be mindful of that. Kenji Yoshino's book, really, really well written. Check it out sometime. Okay. So we talked about your cues on campus. What are your cues when you're out for determining I'm good now? Um, well, <laughs> I will almost always come out if I think the other person may be gay or queer, you know, and then a lot of times I'm right. Not always, but my gaydar still works pretty well. So <laughs> I'll, I'll come out then. Is that a um, pejorative term, gaydar? Not within the community. Okay. It's not, not, not in the community. I don't think, you know, um, it's, it's probably more, I don't know how much the students use it. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, definitely my generation still uses it and it's not pejorative at all. It's more of a kind of finding, finding your people. Does it mean anything at all when you walk into an office building and somebody has, um, the pride flag, um, on their door, um, or they're wearing a pin. Do you see that as contrived or is it like, thank you for doing that? Cause I know like you're good. I absolutely see it as thank you for doing that. And I know you're good. You know, one of the um, pre COVID, which I hope to get back to soon. Um, I, I am a volunteer at Exeter hospital. And um, one of the things I'm doing there is helping Exeter hospital and core physicians um, become more, um, how I was saying, basically become more aware and like affirming of um, queer healthcare. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that scanning the room because I will tell you, every queer person will walk into a space and scan the room for something safe. Mm. Whether that be the rainbow, whether that be, a, you know, um, a postcard, you know, by, it was a poem by Audrey Lord. You know, we look for these things to bring them safe. And if we see something on the other side, you know, if um, I remember a couple of years ago after the, after uh, President Trump was elected the first time, elected, you know, not the second, not second time, but the first time, um, I had to get my tire fixed. And because it was like really low. And I pulled in the first tire post to go into, and I didn't even see the sign, the Trump sign until I was in there. At that point, I was like, oh God. And, you know, I, you know, I was like, okay. Yeah. Tire and get out. And in that moment, did you choose to cover? Oh yeah, absolutely cover. Yeah, absolutely cover. And that's and, and here's the thing, that is a privilege that I have. Yeah, yeah. To cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you on that. And with regard to symbols, I didn't know how to feel about it, but yeah, I appreciated the prevalence of Black Lives Matter flags that I was suddenly seeing around town immensely. I get the value of. Yeah seeing symbols. And when I say I'm somewhat conflicted, um, I also don't want us 
suggest or think that just because a person has a flag up means they've arrived. You know, no. like I, I know, you know, I could wear a pin or somebody could wear a, a pride pin and still have their journey and yeah. understanding. So, um, yeah, I asked the, the, the question in that spirit, like, are you instantly like, I right, cool word, like I could, I don't have to cover with you. Yeah. And it's not an automatic pass for that person, yep. but it's definitely the doors open. Yeah, it's a, you know, there's no handbook out there for us. Like this is when somebody's cool and accepting and warm. And um, but yeah, if you're of a marginalized identity, that exists. Trying to figure out um, who's safe, who isn't, and yeah, that's the unfortunate part of our experience. So as we close out here, um, I wanted to ask you. Uh, a question along the lines of your role as LGBTQ plus coordinator on campus. Let's say an adult suspects that a young person is grappling with their sexuality. How do you support them? That's a really good question um, because you're right. You can't be like, um, you're queer. You should go, go to talk to this person. So I think what you do is, um, you just simply let that student know you're there for them. Just, you know, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, I see you're struggling. I'm not exactly sure you're, what you're struggling with, but know that I am here. And if you don't want to go to me, you know, um, know that there are other adults who and friends who care about you. Do not do the, you know, I... I see you're struggling. Oh, by the way, my best friend is, um, you know, is gay. So I'm cool with that. Don't do that. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. But just to say, just be there. Be there to listen to that person. I mean, there are students I've had who I'm like, I know, I, one day you will come out. You know, but while they're at the camera, like, you can't be like, okay, you got to come out now. Here we go. Just, just save yourself the process. Because no, it's a problem. Everyone has to go through their own journey. Yeah. You know, and um our role as adults in this camp is to provide a safe environment for them to go on that journey. And so it would be the same for parents then. So yeah. parents can't really speed up the process. Nope. But would you say that there are particular things a parent can say or do to signal to their child that it's okay ultimately if yeah. you if you are gay? Absolutely. You know, one of the things parents can do from very early on is not assume that their child is straight. And, you know, um, say something like, you know, hey, when you grow up and you know, fall in love, you know, he or she or they, you know, will always be accepted here. So there's other ways of um, there's ways of doing that, you know, that is supportive and kind of loving and just not automatically, you know, put in labels. I think, I think what happens often is well-meaning parents will just, you know, automatically assume for whatever reason that their child may be straight. You know, why just assume your child a child yeah. and, you know, let them figure that out. And, and the more gender neutral and inclusive language you use at home will create that safe environment for your child if they do come out or if they're straight, that's fine too. Yeah. Going back to the matter of flags, right? So we talked about the pride flag and Black Lives Matter, like symbols that 
are supposed to suggest how we feel about particular issues, people, et cetera. You know, I'm thinking about the matter of raising um, children. And the pointed question to you would be, do you feel as though it's homophobic on the part of a parent who deems themselves an ally, they, they wear the pin, they've got the, the pride flag. However, the parent um, speaks in very absolute terms about relationships. Um, so it's like, so when you grow up and you get married to a man, or, you know, when are you going to start bringing a girlfriend or boyfriend around? So if a person is very absolute in the way they speak to their children about relationships and they rock a pin, do you believe that to be homophobic? I believe that to be ignorant. I think it's also where this society is um, so straight centric. It's only recently that I'm watching commercials on television and, and it's, it's not unrare anymore to see same sex or same gender couples or the same gender couples on those commercials. That's happening more and more. But I remember, you know, when I'd be flipping through a magazine and I saw the Tylenol commercial, uh, there were two women there. I was like, oh, I cut it out, yeah. you know, and it's, it's that representation it's seeing yourselves there. You know, and so I think it's partly society. And if you're if you have the flags out there and you're doing, you know, you're signaling to everyone else, but then in the house you're saying a different thing. That's that's problematic. It's tricky. I mean, sometimes there's a lot of times it's fear. Yeah. You know, I remember, you know, um, when I told my parents that I was getting married to Lee, they were afraid. They were afraid that my life is going to be harder. They were afraid, you know, uh, of all those things. And yeah, maybe it is hard in some ways, but I also think it, in other ways, it's so much more freeing. I'm not living a lie. And I think, you know, living as your authentic self has allowed you to develop a strength of character. And I think that's in general, right? There's the strength of character that comes with um, being true to who you are. And I want to talk a little bit about that strength. I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you for this. There have been moments where I'm at the table, we're at the table in a meeting at work and somebody says something and it's not necessarily awful or racist. It's just in the moment I'm thinking to myself, all right, okay. Like, how do I address this in the most tactful manner? So I'm like forming my sentences in my head because, you know, I, I still do a lot of translating in my head because English is not my first language. Yeah. It's my third, actually. And then Joanne jumps in like, let's reconsider that. And it's like, yes, the white woman at the table is asking y'all to, like, think about this differently. And I know you've told me that, you know, you've been on your own journey with uh, being an ally in that way. But, yeah, I wanted to shout you out in this episode uh, as somebody who has done that regularly, where I'm like, word, let's go. Like, I don't have to be the representative right now. So thank you for that. Um, and can you talk a little just briefly about your own journey with knowing, like, I got to step in now as an ally? If you think back to the time of Nazi Germany, yeah. and you think back to the the categories and groups of people who were, you know, first in prison and then killed by people not speaking up, many more people died. 
And that's a huge thing. I truly believe that for us to be our best selves, we need to live in a community that is diverse, that um, represents different voices, different religions, different ethnicities, different racial groups, different, you know, um, gender and sexualities. And to be our best community, we need to live in that community that's all together thinking, going, moving forward. And if anyone's voice is silenced around that table, we're not as strong as we can be. Mm. Way to close it out. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being uh, the colleague that you are at work. And I hope those who listened um, learned something from this episode or that it affirmed something for others. Well, you are most welcome and you're one of my favorite colleagues. So I'm happy to do this stuff for you. Safe at work, yet unsettled in the community. Outspoken in one setting and more calculated in others. The weight of having an identity or multiple ones that have been marginalized and outright attacked in different ways leads to this existential imbalance. This is true in the workplace, classroom, and even at home. When are you your full self? What cues help you rise to the occasion or not? Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting.